Hi, this is Savannah Saunders from The Wonderful World of Dance, and today I'm absolutely honoured to introduce world-famous, award-winning choreographer and artistic director, Kathy Marston. Many listeners around the world may have seen Kathy's incredible body of work as she has choreographed for companies from the Royal Ballet, San Francisco Ballet, American Ballet Theatre, Northern Ballet, English National, Cuban National, Ballet Black, and so many more. Kathy is presenting the world premiere of Tennessee Williams' Summer and Smoke with Houston Ballet this month. Now, today's interview is being recorded in Sydney, Australia, where I'm currently on holiday. And Kathy is joining us from Switzerland, where she is set to become Artistic Director of Ballet Zurich this summer. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Hello. So, before we talk about your world premiere of Summer and Smoke with Houston Ballet, Let's just take a moment to look back at your stellar career. I'm, I know so many people will be interested in sort of where you've come from and to where you are now. So you've, your career has been over 25 years. You trained with the Royal Ballet School and where you've gone on to forge a successful uh, dance career, very much based over in Switzerland, but um, with the Zurich Ballet and Luzerne and Bern Ballet. What inspired you to become a professional dancer? Oh, that goes long way back. <laughs> long way back. <laughs> yeah. um, well, when I was a child, I did a lot of different things. Um, I wanted to be an actress for quite a long time. And unfortunately, I couldn't. my parents couldn't find an acting class at that age. I forget how young I was. So I did all the things that might contribute to my acting career. Uh, later on. And one of those things, of course, involved dancing. Um, I actually started with tap, um, which I love. I mean, it, it didn't last too many years, but it stuck actually. And I, I tend to always throw a tap step or two into the choreography. It comes in handy sometimes. Um, but I began with tap and then the teacher said, oh, I really should start ballet. And, and so that went on. And I, I went to normal school um, until I was 16. So not a ballet school. My parents were both teachers and they felt strongly that I should get a normal education before concentrating on ballet. Um, but I went to summer schools, um, often with the Royal Ballet um, or the RAD. Um, and then when I was 16, I got a place at the Royal Ballet Upper School. And by that point, my heart was definitely set on becoming a dancer. Although the choreographer thing took over pretty, pretty soon after that. So when did that transition happen for you? And were there any roles within your ballet career that influenced that transition or that you've drawn upon in that period? Honestly, it was really from one of the summer schools that I learned what being a choreographer was. I think I'd always been choreographing. Um, but at the Royal Ballet Summer School, they had three students in the upper school create works on the summer school students. And I was in a piece by Christopher Hampson, who's now the director of Scottish Ballet. And I loved it. It was by far the highlight for me of the two-week course. And when I joined the school a few months later, you could choose to sign up as a choreographer and, and you then created on your colleagues and your peers. And I didn't even think, like, absolutely, I wanted to do this thing. Um, and I was so lucky to have brilliant teachers in Norman Morris and David Drew, both of whom have sadly passed now. But Norman Morris was an incredible person because he had directed both the Royal Ballet Company and also Rombert Dance Company, uh, which is an amazing achievement, really. And he was so quiet and softly spoken, but wise. Um, 
And David Drew was his opposite in that he was very loud and would go in with two feet and say things <laughs> as he saw them rather bluntly. But they just worked brilliantly together and were very supportive um, during my two years at the upper school. So really it was the choreography that got me through. The dance was hard going. Um, and of course I still wanted to be a dancer, but it was really the, the choreographic course that inspired me more than anything else. So I, I kind of knew at that point that that's where I really wanted to head. It's really interesting that your calling to be a choreographer came so early in your career. Um, for those who haven't seen your work or are set to come to the Houston Ballet and see your your work, Summer and Smoke, how would you describe your choreographic language? How would you describe what interests you about the subject matters that you choose to draw upon? Mm. I think I've always um, sort of crossed the gap between ballet and contemporary dance vocabulary. So that's been there right from the start. And that's just my natural way of moving. And, you know, I joke sometimes that in at the Royal Ballet School, I'd stand at the side of a pas de deux class while, you know, you do it in two groups and I'd be watching the other group. And if someone would make a mistake and sort of fall off balance a bit, I'd get quite inspired by that because something quite interesting would often happen. So... It's definitely within that world. I do use a ballet technique. I love working on point um, when it's right for the character. You know, there are some characters that actually feel that they should be on flat or even in barefoot. Um, but I do find that the point shoe um, can sort of largen the dance vocabulary, amplify it um, in a large theater. Um, and and a ballet isn't naturalistic. You know, it does. It speaks loud like opera i guess so the point she helps that i often find but over the years i i've tried for many years to not be boxed into a specific area and then after i directed the burn ballet for six years so that would have been about by the end of that it was 2013 it became so clear to me that the pieces i had really loved making that really made my heart sing were the narrative pieces and that's been there since the beginning, but I'd sort of resisted being sort of put in that corner. And then I thought, actually, you know what? I really like being in this corner. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, and since then, it's weird how once you make that decision, so many opportunities open up. Because I think from a commissioner's point of view, and I understand that now from both sides, you kind of want to know what you're commissioning. You don't want someone who sort of says, oh, I could do anything you want. Like, you know, that's useful sometimes. But actually you want um, to work with someone who really knows what they want and you can then program it sensibly. Um, and so for me, making that decision to to specialize, I suppose, was quite liberating. Um, and so really I... I make narrative work and I love it. And I sometimes, very occasionally, still will make a work that's more musically inspired. In actual fact, I made one in the pandemic and, uh, and another one quite recently for Joffrey Ballet and to Wagner's Siegfried's Idyll. And even in those works that are not based on a book or a play or a biography, um, they always end up having some sort of narrative thread because it's just how my mind works. Um, I like working with meaning and so even when well, whether there's a character that I'm specifically trying to portray for example Alma or John in Summer and Smoke or whether it's a, an abstract character that I've invented 
I have to go from somewhere, and often that somewhere is word-based. That's just my method now. Um, and so I define the sort of uh, character or emotional world that I'm trying to convey before I actually start making movement. And how do you approach making the movement? What, how does it look like in the studio or does it start way before the studio after you've chosen either a narrative or a character or a story? How does it, what's the process like? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll prepare very deeply before I get into the studio. So by, by the time I arrive in the studio, I've obviously identified the story. I've done a lot of research. I've made a structure, which I call a scenario. I've worked with a composer or I've chosen the music. So I've got a sort of template there. I've worked with the designer. So I know what the design is going to look like. So all of those elements are in place. And I've also written lists of words, which are kind of distillations of that research. And the lists of words are usually for each character or group of characters. Sometimes the character has multiple lists. So for example, if you're going to create Romeo and Juliet, um, obviously there's transformation throughout that piece. So they, they start in with one list of words, but they, those words will change during the course of the ballet. Um, and I'll talk those through with the dancers and often try and expand on them with the dancers because I find that the more I can engage their minds early on in, in, with the character development or the character definition, uh, it'll feed into the choreography straight away. So we'll, we'll talk about the character often sitting down in the middle of the studio, and then we'll stand up and begin to create a vocabulary for that character, which isn't at that point connected to a specific scene, but often we'll start looking at how the character walks. Um, you know, do they walk toe heel or heel toe or turned out or on point or heavily or how, how do they, how do they walk and what sort of, are there any particular hand positions that they might hold themselves in or just simple things like that. And then we'll create movement phrases using those words as sort of um, little prompts or cues. And we'll have a, a few phrases for each character that we'll save and videos in different files. And it gives the dancers then vocabulary to draw on. So then when we get to the point after a few days or a week of where we settle into the, the, the rehearsals where we're saying, okay, we're now working on this part of it or this group scene. Um, they have things that they can offer me because especially with group scenes, it's very difficult. You can't tell 10 people what to do all at the same time, unless it's a unison scene, um, which unison I use sparingly. I have a sort of questions about unison sometimes. <laughs> um, so if the dancers have something that they can bring to the table that they know is in the right world, um, you can do so that more confidently and more fluently, and it's it's very collaborative. It's a collaborative process. And thinking about your upcoming world premiere of Tennessee Williams' Summer and Smoke with Houston Ballet, how did you, what inspired you to select this particular story, and is this a story that was important to you before, or? It actually came up, um, Around about 2017, 18, I'd been invited to create a piece for the San Francisco Ballet for their Unbanned Festival, which was um, 12 choreographers making half-hour pieces that they were all premiering in a week. It was very intense. And it was an opportunity for me, being the first piece that I really created in the U.S., to look at American literature. Um, and so I read a ton and 
for San Francisco actually fell upon um, Edith Wharton's novella, Ethan Frome, and that became a ballet called Snowblind, which is actually currently being performed. It's just premiered in Atlanta and it's going now to Nashville Ballet. Um, and I'm actually going to bring it to Ballet Zurich in, in October as well. So that's having a lovely sort of current life. Um, but in the course of finding that piece, I read um, some Tennessee Williams and came across Summer and Smoke. And that, so that's sort of been in the back of my mind as a piece that I'd like to create. And then I was asked by American Ballet Theatre to make a new work. And I suggested Summer and Smoke. And, and so we were planning that. And then, of course, the pandemic came. And so things got delayed and shelved a little bit. And then um, Stanton Welsh asked me to make a piece for Houston Ballet. And I thought, gosh, actually, Summer Smoke would be great for Houston, you know, being in the South and all of that. And, and as it was looking tricky for ABT in the, in the wake of the, or after the pandemic, I suggested, would, would both companies be interested in making this a co-production? And they were. So we decided to create it in Houston. And then in the autumn, it will go to ABT at the Coke Theatre. Uh, absolutely wonderful. What's the, what is the story of Summer and Smoke for those who haven't read the Tennessee Williams piece? Gosh, okay. <laughs> it's basically it's basically about two characters, um, Alma and John. So Alma is the daughter of the reverend of this little small town. Um, and she, well, she says quite often in the play, Alma is Spanish for soul. But she lives very much in her soul in that kind of spiritual place. Whereas John, who's her next door neighbor, they've grown up sort of next door to one another. And John's the son of the local doctor and is a man of science and the body. Um, and it's really those two contrasting worldviews that, that form the kind of engine of the piece. Um, they, despite being kind of opposites, one might say, they are very attracted to each other. Well, isn't that despite? I mean, we're often attracted to our opposites, aren't we? Um, and so there is this kind of love affair that develops and, you know, it's it's the off and ons of that. They're, they're drawn closer to one another. He's gone off to university. He comes back from university and, and they're drawn closer to one another. But she just can't quite let go uh, in her body. She can't quite let go physically into a sexual or sensual relationship with him. And he gets frustrated by that and, and very frustrated by her. Um, approach, a religious approach to the world or spiritual approach to the world. Um, and anyway, there's a, there's a turn of events which gets very tragic. Um, John has a, another, excuse me, a relationship with someone called Rose who's much more sensual and party, you know, into parties. And he has a house party and Rose's parents, along with a load of other friends, come and his his father, who's out of town, comes home. Well, Alma calls his father and says, there's this crazy party going on at your house. Come and sort it out. Uh, who is, by that point, gone next door to Alma. Anyway, he has a fight with um, Rose's dad, which ends up in him being shot. So I'm not explaining this very well, but no, you, just, you absolutely are. I can I can see the whole I can see the whole piece <laughs> as, yeah. exactly as you say a, a real narrative ballet. Yeah, it's it's a narrative. So he gets shot and he dies, and so John lives with the guilt of it, and so does Alma because it was Alma, you know, meddling. She made the phone call to get him back. She couldn't leave leave things to be. Uh, to, uh, she couldn't leave things alone. 
And so they both feel very, very guilty and are very sadly unable to get together. You know, they've been so close and then this incident causes them to start moving apart again and actually causes John to change entirely. So he becomes this super efficient and dedicated doctor um, and Alma realizes that she has to burst through this barrier that she's got in herself to, in, with it, regards to her physicality. And she goes to him and she says, take me and, and this is the time, let's do it. And, you know, and he can't. And so she's left alone. But there is this sort of kind of epilogue, which is very strange in the play, but I rather love it, um, where she's then in the park. And I'll come to the park in a moment because that's an extra bit. She's in the park and along comes a stranger, a traveling salesman. And she flirts with him. And she makes a move on him. And they have this moment in the ballet. It turns out to be a sort of elongated kiss in the in the play. They go off together um, to have a night on the town. But the point is she she discovers her full self by the end. And I think that's... Um, strangely, some people keep saying to me, Do, is Alma a victim? And I don't see her as a victim. Maybe that's just my interpretation of the play. I feel like by the end of the play, she's um, found her whole self. Um, and I think that's the opposite of her being a victim. She's the winner. In a... Anyway, so that's the story, not very succinctly put. What I have done with the with the ballet is add a character. So Tennessee Williams in his play is very um, prescriptive about the stage setting and even the music. Um, he really describes how he sees the set. And, and one of the things he describes is an angel fountain in the sort of pub or the central town square. There's a fountain, there's an angel, and she's got cupped hands and the water flows out of her hands. And she's supposed to be present throughout the piece, he says. And reading that, I felt like, gosh, well, if we're supposed to have an angel present throughout the piece, surely in a ballet that angel would be a dancer and, yeah. and move. And as soon as you start exploring that possibility, you realize that you then are asking, well, what role does the angel play? And what does she feel about this whole thing? And Alma comes to her every day and confides in her. What does the angel think? Um, and so I added the angel. And with the angel come six other angel chorus people who has her wings. Um, so there's a, quite a large element of the ballet which is um, extra to the play. Um, but I think I think it adds to it. I, I feel very satisfied with what that, that brought to the piece. Um, it, it, it sounds like, a, you know, you mentioned, you know, the sort of transformational, you know, love and tragedy and, you know, sort of finding oneself in, in the journey. I, I I can I can literally imagine the the stage setting as you're as you're talking about it. Very, very much a, a narrative. And when you were thinking about those words and um you know, starting to work with the dancers to create those unique gestures and, and steps and movements, what are some of the the, the unique elements that came out in, in that work in, in the studio with the dancers that we'll, and audiences will be able to sort of note when they see it on stage? Well, for, if you take Alma, for example, um, in the play, she's got this sort of nervous laugh um, and breathless. She gets breathless and her heart beats too fast. And so things like that, finding visual interpretations of those qualities, um, She's pulled often in two directions. So there's little hand gestures where 
she pushes something away and pulls it back at the same time. Um, there's also the dancers actually gave me this wonderful, um, you know, good luck gift some earrings in the sort of shape of an S. And they said, well, the S's are all over the piece. And I hadn't really thought about it, but they are the, the sort of, um, how do you call that? The yin and yang kind of signs, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. S wavy type shape. The set is in this shape. So you needed two level set really, or you need in the, for the play, you need to be able to provide two separate spaces. One that could be John's house or surgery and one that could be Alma's, um, the, the the rectory and so we have two levels but it's not sort of in a straight line across the back of the stage there's a s-shaped curve to it so you have a little fountain curve where there's the fountain the angel lives and then there's a slightly larger platform in a circular shape and there's also a lot in the choreography which i think must have been a little subconscious so the angel often moves with her arms in a one one arm curved upwards and one arm curved downwards, and she swaps them in, in a sort of turning step. That's one of her motifs, um, and I think that probably we must have talked about it to have got there. But I'd forgotten it to be honest. Um, but this sort of two way opposite arm motif is certainly integrated into a fair bit, and the swirl, the sort of circular swirl of everything, is is part of the choreography. Um, and then John, of course, has different characteristics. So his material is blunter, I would say. So he uses sometimes flexed feet or he'll do joking things like he'll sort of jump into a forward roll and he'll surprise her. He he often has his hands in his pockets. He's more sunken into his lower back and, and his hips and a bit more casual. Um, yeah, that's mm. that's the sort of thing. Yeah, again, I could immediately visualize the, those movements and motifs you've mentioned. And what would you love audiences to take away from seeing this piece? I think there's two things. I mean, hopefully they they will engage with this story and feel moved by this story and feel, as the angel does, proud of Alma or, or happy for Alma, I guess, at the end when... She, she actually steps into the fountain at the end and sort of splashes herself and sort of renews herself, starts, starts life again in a way. Um, so I hope there will be a certain engagement with that journey. Um, and I suppose in a slightly more philosophical perspective, it, I feel like we are in a time um, in the world where we, there's this pressure to choose. Are you in this camp or that camp on so many different themes? And, um, you know, I'm British, of course, the Brexit was a big thing. Are you proud Brexit or against Brexit? Oh, I mean, there's so many subjects. You have to be one thing or another thing. And I think Alma and John are such a clear example of that. Like, are you, do you work, do you go through life from a re religious perspective or, or a bodily perspective? And actually it doesn't need to be that cut and dry. There's so much space in between those two polarities. Um, and I, I hope that if you did spend time thinking about that, having seen the piece or read the piece, that you might be encouraged to look at other people's points of view a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, one of the points of view is that you are um, a female choreographer 
um, which is absolutely wonderful. We need more diverse voices and women choreographers, of course. And I noted that you're going to be one of 12 women or the 12th woman who's choreographed a world premiere for the Houston Ballet. Um, and Summer and Smoke is part of 27% um, getting into percentages of works announced by the company in the 22-23 season that's choreographed by women. What's, what has it been your experiences um, as a female choreographer and your view on the importance of the visibility of women choreographers? My experience goes back a long way now. Um, so I, I mentioned David Joe Norman Morris at the beginning. Interestingly, that was back in 1994 that I was at the Royal Ballet School, and they really drew it to my attention that there were so few, almost no female choreographers and were very encouraging from that perspective. I think that would have been encouraging anyway, quite honestly, but they, they made sure that I was aware of the situation. Um, did I feel that it was a problem? Yes, probably in ways, you know, it would, that would be another interview to go into yeah. the detail of that. But, um, over the years, I, ex I think I did feel that there were difficulties that I had to get over, um, or around, but it certainly has started to change in a massive way. So I guess what would they that'd be maybe 10 years ago now, there were a few people that started to really speak up. And one of them was a, a critic for The Observer, Luke Jennings. Mm -hmm. And I remember he wrote a significant article, must have been for The Observer in, in the UK. Um, but it kind of took on some momentum, I think. And I'm, I'm guessing at 10 years, I, I haven't gone back and looked at that precisely, but it feels like certainly in the last sort of five or six years, things have really started to change. And the, in America, the Dance Data Project is making a difference, really, you know, bringing, as you say, the statistics clearly to the table. Um, and then, of course, I, I, there is the question, I don't like being called a female choreographer and as, as, um, Director of Ballet Zurich, as you say, I'll be starting in the summer there. And I actually just wrote an email to our mark, our press department saying, please never put the word female in front of the word choreographer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want to see it um, because we will have choreographers of all genders or any genders. Yeah, on, absolutely. At, uh, on stage and they're there because I love their work. Yeah. And um, having said that, I do think it's important to be aware of the diverse voices that you are bringing and giving opportunities to. So I'm, I'm sort of, I can understand both points of view, but it, it does bother me in press material to use those words together because you would never do it for a male choreographer. No, you will no. never get a program of, and and I understand that the reason that it happens sometimes is or for all good intentions. So I yeah. can live with it, and I and I am sometimes in programs that are described as programs of three or have many female choreographers and, and it's okay, but it won't be the approach I'll take in Zurich. Annoyingly in, in, um, German, in the German language, it's, it's defined. So choreograph and or choreograph in is, um, you, you hear it straight away. I don't know. So I'm, I don't, maybe that's not annoying. Yeah. You hear the gender. <laughs> yeah. You hear, you hear who you are. Yeah. Um, in, in the simple word without making a big deal of it. 
but yeah. Anyway, the point being, I think we're going in the right direction, and there's still some way to go. Yeah, it's you know, movement is is happening. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think uh, yeah, it is definitely moving in in the right way. And just on that note, what what words of advice would you give to other aspiring choreographers or choreographers? And uh, <laughs> artistic directors um, drawing upon, you know, maybe something that you wish that you had known at the beginning of your um, your choreographic career, or something that you have have learnt or lived by that you'd like to share with others. Oh my god! <laughs> I know. Um, speak first. I always ask it, but because I, I love, I love it. I love. Uh, I mean, you have to just stick with it. I mean, I really have had a slow burn career. And I think ultimately that's probably the big difference that I see between my trajectory and that of male colleagues and peers of a similar generation. It's just happened slower. Yeah. Um, and I don't regret that at all because it's given me time to find my way. So I really uh, have absolutely no regret about the way it's gone, but I have had to stick with it. And you, now as a director, I'm receiving so many emails from people sort of wanting me to watch their work and get opportunities. And I see the other side, which is really realistically, you have one or two opportunities a year to offer to other choreographers. Um, if you're going to present a repertoire that's, you know, bringing in some existing work, some new work, some of your work, it is, um, there are not that many chances. So you just have to stick with it and keep trying. And if you get an answer from someone that's great if you don't get an answer from someone don't take it personally it's they're, they're under a huge amount of pressure too um so that would be the main thing and to use any opportunity you can to develop yourself find new skills you you never know where one thing's going to lead that's something i've also really experienced that sometimes it can be unclear why you take up an, up an opportunity and maybe it's really not well paid or it's got terrible conditions, but you never know where that's going to lead. So as much as you can take on and learn from different moments and just do them, just be open and do them. Um, great. That's yeah. great. That's great advice because as you say, one step leads to the another and you don't know what's going to be around the corner. Uh, thank you so much for your time um, today. Next time, we'll discuss your vision as the artistic director of Ballet Zurich. I'd love to hear Absolutely. about yeah what what your plans are for the company. That would be amazing. Before I before I go, um, just to wrap up and remind audiences not to miss the chance to see um, Kathy Marston's world premiere of Tennessee Williams' Summer and Smoke with Houston Ballet, which is the America's fourth largest ballet company. And you've got to go visit their website, houstonballet.org, for all the details about the show, which runs through to the 19th of March. Thank you so much, Kathy. My pleasure. Thank you.